Welcome to this Knowledge Natter by RCBS Knowledge. Here we have friendly and informal discussions with our Knowledge Award champions and those who are empowered by quality improvement in their work. Whether you're a veterinary surgeon, veterinary nurse, receptionist or member of management, quality improvement will and can positively impact your everyday life. Listen and be inspired. Hello everybody and welcome to this RCBS Knowledge Natter. My name is Lou Northway, I'm Clinical Lead RVN at RCBS Knowledge and I have the fantastic and honoured job of interviewing um, the 2022 Knowledge Award winners and today I'm speaking with Eloise Collins, formerly of Beach House Veterinary Group. So hello Eloise, welcome. Hi there, thank you for having me, it's nice to be talking things QI. It's always good to talk things QI, isn't it? Um, I have been so excited about talking to you today about your project in particular, because this is um, very similar to things that I've also looked at in practice over the years and something which I think um, will um, resonate with the majority of listeners. Mm-hmm, so sure. before we get started with your project, I would love um, for you to tell me and the audience all about your career so far and how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, um, so I went to Harper Adams University. I qualified in 2013 um, and I then went straight into equine practice into a uh, sort of equine uh, first opinion and referral hospital where I was there for three years. And then um, I met my partner who was in the military and that meant an awful lot of moving around. Um, so I did locum work for about four years. And then um, Got to practice, got to, went to a practice in Surrey for about 18 months, luckily during COVID. So I was working all throughout COVID. Um, and then um, we moved then again to Hampshire. And that's when I then went to Beach House um, and started working there. And um, in the meantime, I also qualified as a physiotherapist um, just, just before COVID. Um, and then obviously lockdown put my, my plans um, aside. So I then started practicing afterwards. So yeah, I've been doing um, nursing and physio for the last few years. Amazing. So you've got so many strings to your bow, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Lots of plates, lots of plates spinning. Um, and how did your um, love for QI come about? When did it all start for you? Mm, so I think um, going to Harper Adams was really good for me. Um, they teach you a lot. They don't teach you QI specifically, but they teach you a lot about critical thinking and um, analysing everything and um, you know, questioning things and not necessarily doing things because that's the way they've always been done. Mm. Um, so that was really good. And then going into the equine practice, I found really helpful. And again, it wasn't necessarily called QI, but we used to do um, you know, journal clubs and we do um, M&M meetings monthly. Um, and that was really useful. And there was just this, this whole culture of, of continuous learning and continuous improvement. Um, and then when I was doing locum work, Obviously, working in so many different practices mm. and just seeing how um, different practices do things and what works and what doesn't. And um, I then thought, you know, it'd really be really nice to be in practice where I can actually mm. implement what I think is, for me anyway, like gold standard nursing, what I see as gold standard nursing, because I have all these ideas and um, I feel like I know what works. Um, and uh, and so then I went to go work in, in Surrey for a year and a half, as I said, during COVID and sort of did a, did a few things there, sort of mainly around patient safety. Um, so um, I sort of made a business. We didn't have any multi-parameter machines or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I made like a business plan and I managed to get um, like our, our practice and our branch practice multi-parameter machines and, and just doing little things like that. And then um, when I went to Beach House, 
I went there and um, and I went in, at, in in like a management role. So I went in as a, I went to go in as a, as a head nurse. They wanted me to be physio. So I went in as deputy head nurse and then that allowed me time to be physio. But actually, I spent an awful lot of time doing yeah. a, lot, a lot of management stuff, um, especially when I started doing the QI stuff. I went in as a management into a management role, and I thought um, straight away, "Oh, there are so many things that I want to change here. Like I can improve this place so much, and it was really exciting for me." Um, and I just I didn't want to go in like a bulldozer and just you know change everything and be like, "You're doing this wrong and doing this wrong," because that's that's not a good way to get people on board. You don't want yeah. to go in and be like, you know, you're doing everything wrong. They're not, they weren't at all, by the way, just saying. <laughs> um, but I could see many, many areas that uh, I thought I could improve. Um, and I just thought, I just need to take a few months and just settle in, get to know everyone um, and get to know the practice and how it works. And then I have my notebook with me and I just write stuff down, everything that I thought, you know, all the little changes. Um, and I thought I would just, position myself as the person that people can go to if they had any problems or, or anything that they wanted changing and I think most importantly actually doing the things that they were asking me to do or at least showing them that I was trying to do them because um, I think a lot of the time people maybe make suggestions and then they're not followed through and then they just stop making suggestions because they think yes. well, what's the point point? Um, so I really wanted to make sure that I was actually delivering the stuff that people wanted um, and that's I sort of came into QI so talking to everyone individually it wasn't like a formal conversation it was mm. just you know when I was operating with vets or you know cleaning up with the nurses um I would just be chatting to them and they would say you know oh, I think this could be better it'd be really nice if we did this and I'd always like make a mental note and then go away and write it down um and then thought how can how can I slowly start to introduce these changes um, and I was doing a lot of um, nursing consults at that time. I did like a few sort of week box of consults. And I just started noticing that we had a lot of dogs coming back with um, gastrointestinal problems mm-hmm. after sort of routine procedures, so routine stays and neuters. And um, I just thought that this isn't normal. It's a bit higher than, than it should be. And thought that this is a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I sort of got into it and started. And then it just sort of snowballed from there. It's quite addictive, isn't it? And it's but it's also super motivating. And like you say, including the team and asking them, what do you think we should improve? Um, it's really nice to get them in, involved as well. Um, and, and making the actual improvements too. You know, we, we, if we went in and we just made the improvements without knowing and measuring where we started, how do you know how far you've gone? So um, you said you were you were doing a lot of consulting in practice and. Um, we found similar actually in mine when we first started thinking about auditing I remember a summer a few of the vets had said oh I've seen a dog with diarrhea today and then the other vet says oh well, me too I've seen two and then the, the nurse says oh I saw one as well so in one day there's four people reporting that there were dogs with diarrhea so we thought, oh well actually on a bigger scale how normal is this we just don't know um, and then yes it's only when you stop and start auditing those things that you can sometimes highlight that actually it's a far bigger problem, especially if you're not a team that may, you may, you may be working in a practice where you're not talking to anyone else. Um, so yes. Um, and what were your team's um, responses when you sort of said, oh guys, I've done an audit on our post-operative neutering outcomes. Um, this is what I found. What was their response like? Um, it was good, actually. I don't think I had anyone thinking, oh my God, she's checking up on us um, and, you know, watching what we're doing. Because um, it wasn't about you know I, I wasn't looking into it and thinking oh is it you know one particular vet cases that you know these are mm. happening to it, it wasn't that specific it was just um 
you're exactly right though isn't it it's not like pinpointing what any one person isn't doing it's about what we are all doing and all the influencing factors around it um so yeah. in your case report um you alluded to all the things that you considered so diet um timings of um, starvation all of those things which can ultimately impact how happy the guts are um yeah. and certainly we we we've been following protocols and guidelines as a profession for many years but actually like, how often do we stop and think is this still appropriate and sometimes yeah. when you look towards the evidence base you see a paper that's released which is actually now you should be doing this and you're like oh great and then you can make a small change and see if it helps yeah yeah well so I think um what was interesting is when I did the audit I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it yes. um I just did it and then um the practice hadn't had any staff meetings since before Covid for a good few years so I um organized based on the diary first to have a staff meeting sat down and said that I've done this audit and this is what um you know our figures show about our post complications and I think nobody was really aware at that stage that there was a problem mm. and it was only because I was doing the majority of the nurse consults I was seeing them back and I was I was aware of it um and I think our figures were quite um sort of far above the national average so it was nice to have that um to yeah. compare against as well so I can because you know otherwise you've got nothing to compare against you don't know whether that's good or, or, or not um so you know it was like these are the figures um and everyone found that quite interesting and then I had gone away and I'd done all the research about the reasons why this might have, have happened and then I just sort of opened up the room and had a bit of a discussion and obviously initially everyone was a bit sort of hesitant like oh we don't really want to you know put our hand up and say anything so a lot of it was sort of me listening to Sam main voice for quite a long time but um, I think once people you know realized that it was I was trying to help everyone trying to benefit the practice I think then everyone sort of you know started chipping in with stuff but I did I did find in staff meetings that it was generally the same few people who would contribute in them you know the same few voices that would be heard which is why I was saying it's really important to talk to people one-on-one -on -one as well afterwards. Um, yeah I think yeah, that's a really, really good point yeah no it's such a good point though isn't it because I can definitely relate to that I'm always well unexpectedly as I'm sure it's no shock to you one of the voices always in the room that speaks up but um, yeah just to consider that though there are maybe um, other men's, members of your team that aren't confident speaking up in a room which may have really valuable feedback so just approaching how you gain your feedback from your team um, in a different way no it's a really good idea yeah yeah and I think um it's probably those those little conversations are probably more valuable than the staff meetings I think yes and you um also we wanted to just to touch on about making changes so making sure that we only make as like a small change at a time so we can measure whether it's effective or not not to know which change actually helped or not mm -hmm. yeah um so that's I think one of the problems I found with the um, post-op complications mm. or with the gastrointestinal problems was that we changed about three, two or three factors at the same time. Um, so we were like, we'll stop feeding them chicken because that's a common allergen. We'll feed them a GI diet and we'll um, give Metacam on recovery. And I can't remember the other one was, but yeah, we changed a few things. We sort of had mm. a few sort of confounding factors. So it was difficult to um, look afterwards and say, you know, oh, because we changed the diet, they didn't have diarrhea afterwards, or because we gave Metacam recovery, we didn't have diarrhea afterwards. Um, so we couldn't isolate the the reason for the improvement. Um, but I guess yeah, we just had to, we carried on with all of those things anyway. So I guess it didn't didn't really matter. 
Yeah, and I thought your point about um, what type of diet the dogs are on is really specific. So, for example, if a dog is always on a chicken and potato or sorry, a fish and potato or something, you know, more specific and then they come, they're coming in for the day and we're giving them, like you say, chicken, then that in itself could be enough just to tip their gastrointestinal tract over the edge um, for yeah. a few days. So sometimes now actually, um, like what you do as well, we ask the owners to bring in a small amount of their usual diet or we send them home sooner and get the owner to feed them as soon as they get home um, to mm -hmm. try and reduce that. Um, but yes, that is definitely a complication. And I think sometimes also um, when you start thinking about complications, you automatically think of patient dying, a patient bleeding out, um, something really serious, don't you? Um, but actually, it's all those small little complications that actually do then become a bigger problem. Um, so it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I found was, because um, obviously you're collecting this data, but you need to know what your post-op results are so there needs to be some way of logging it on your pms and um, yes. so that you can just run a report and hopefully these stats come up you don't want to be going through every you know post you know op individually and looking and and seeing how they were in their post-op checks and um, so it was uh, an ivc practice i was working in um and they had their um post-op scoring system so on, a, on a one to five um, and that's something that i um Sort of really encouraged when I when I was trying mm. to get this data um, and because, because I had because we weren't really recording um, post-op scores I was going back and I was looking individually through the, through the clinical notes and I was noticing that um, they had like a very basic post-op scoring beforehand yeah. <clears throat> and I was noticing that everyone was putting um, you know POA zero and when I, when I actually read through the notes it was saying oh you know there is a bit of, of swelling and um, you know the dog has been licking a bit but it's not infected so it's fine and they gave it a zero and I thought well that's not really a zero is it you know that, that needs to be flagged up because if that's happening for all cases then we need to be maybe like sending them home mm. with bus, like, ensuring, making sure they're going with bus to follow some kind of you know something some kind of device to prevent interference like you know it's all these little things that are actually really important. Yes I found very similar in my practice actually when we rolled out um so years ago I used I did used to be that person that would sit there and go in and out of every record it took me hours wasn't particularly um, time effective but I did it for a few years until our PMS system um, I also now work for an IBC practice became much more um, efficient and effective and um, the team could input the code so I wouldn't have to read the clinical history and make my own decision so it was that's very subjective as well interpreting someone else's clinical notes you can't see the patient that's in front of you um, so I do think that's more accurate. But when we first rolled it out, um, despite sort of the communications with the team, um, a few of the vets had um, scored like a lot of threes and fours. I was like, what on earth is going on this month? And then I, went, I looked at the records and like no abnormality detected. I was like, well, it's fine. And I said to them, oh, I just wondered why you'd scored them a three. And they said, oh, it was the third post-op check. Or I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. No. Anyway, so we had to just double, double check that everyone was really clear with the scoring system on how. Yeah. Um, are grading them but it is worth anyone that's listening um, depending on whether you're in a corporate practice or a primary care practice have a look at what com computer system you're using and speak to your um, software company and see how you can utilize your data capture because it's so much more effective and efficient than you sitting there for hours like I used to do um, pulling data off um, 
But yes, I think that's what I was going to talk about for data capture. My brain's gone a bit blank on that front, <laughs> reflecting on the hours I would sit in front of a computer. But anyway, data collection doesn't have to be um, really uh, drawn out and long either, does it? You can literally stick a piece of paper on a wall um, auditing post-op temperatures because that's something else that you looked at as well, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's something that I came to. Um, I think because of the, the post-op complications, I then started looking into other things and especially our anaesthetic sheets, and realised that um, if I was looking at you know, when Metacam was given, was it was given you know, during surgery, after surgery, and there wasn't really anywhere on the sheet to write this kind of thing. There was nowhere to really like, write um, blood pressures. Um, and I thought, you know, I need to change these. So I changed them for the, um, the AVA anaesthetic um, sheets, which I really like. Um, it's just one A4 piece of paper, but you can write an awful lot on there. And it's quite clear as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that allowed me to um, to do the data capture, as you were as you're talking about, um, because if you don't record it, then there's, there's no way of you know, doing a lot of this mm. auditing. Yeah, and hypothermia is something that's really, um, I think, overlooked a lot of the time. You know, the patient wakes up, maybe a bit slower than normal, but they go home. But we actually forget that it adversely affects their whole body systems and increases the risk of uh, post-operative death considerably. So, um, yes, absolutely. This is definitely something I'd encourage everybody um, to be monitoring very closely. Um, And then you can have a think about, you know, what new bits of kit you might want to get to keep your patients nice and warm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think, I think as you said, you know, the patients wake up and even if their temperatures are, you know, really quite cold, maybe you know, in the 35, they still recover, maybe, maybe slowly, but they still recover fine and then go home. I think people think, oh, well, they were fine. So, you know, that, that's OK. Yes. Um, and I think, again, that is about education and also about, as you're saying, the equipment that you have available to you um, and, and, and using it. <laughs> I think yeah. that's the important thing. I've it's, been to some practices where they have a bear hugger, but they don't necessarily use it because they don't like the fact that they start sweating because they're sat next to it when they're doing an anaesthetic and that kind of thing. Yeah, and no, education is a massive part of it as well, isn't it? It's not just processes, but it's like the foundation knowledge around what you're doing and why. Um, and like what you were saying earlier about the non-steroidals, whether that positively influences a dog to have diarrhea post-op maybe it does maybe it doesn't but if you're monitoring blood pressure and that's all lovely then hopefully if you did give your non-steroidals it wouldn't be too much of a bother but if they then were hypotensive you could expect that potentially their guts might be unhappy 24 48 hours later I don't know but um yes monitoring is everything but we're not here yeah. to do an anaesthetic lecture today anyway. <laughs> as much as I feel like my brain going off on a spiral now. Um, and so when you were there, um, Eloise, your team, how was their like responses to QI as the months went um, by? You said that they were uh, more forthcoming with ideas and suggestions. Did any of the other team decide to take on like other mini audits or anything like that whilst you were there? No, <laughs> no. I think because um, it, it is... It is, you know, time consuming when you have mm. when, you, when you're doing it and you do need to put aside these, you know, protected hours to, to do this QI stuff. And um, other people just didn't have the time. Um, you know, you had people um, studying for their, you know, ECC certificates and students trying to get their MPLs done. And, you know, in a, in a busy environment, mm. people just don't have the time. Um, oh, and I also they didn't really know about QI. That was the other thing. Um, people started to get interested when I, you know, was showing them the results, and I would start. Um, often, I would you know, go upstairs and be sat in the in the, in the you know mm. 
in the computer room just doing all of this stuff and then sometimes I would go down and I do it in the prep room people could see me doing it and um and then they, they would come over and then start asking me questions about it um and you know I would have maybe students there and I would be telling them what I was doing and why I was doing it um just so they it became normal for them and they yes. saw, it, saw it happening all the time um and especially for the students I think it's really important um so then they go away and they they think that it is normal in practice and um, can see what a useful tool it is. Yeah, I think it's like it's game changing, isn't it? Like it really does change your mindset. Like when you go into work and you're looking at what you're doing, like every single thing you start reflecting on and thinking, oh, is that effective? Can we improve that? Um, and I, I'm I am at the phase at the stage now where I think that every practice needs a quality improvement ambassador. Yeah, 100%. With, it amazing. needs to be a specific role because it's not something you can just do. Oh, if you've got time, like it has to be allocated because it's super duper important. Um, and those of you that are listening, you may not be aware, but it's actually a requirement now in the practice standard scheme to undertake audit and other QI activities. So now is the time to open your mind, uh, bring your team along with you for the ride and get on board the bus. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but I find um, in in practices, I find sort of general computer literacy quite poor sometimes. Um, I think you know technology takes a bit of a back burner when you uh, when you work with animals, and um, and I think that is definitely an area that we need to improve on. Not that you need to be like a tech genius to do QI, but I think it is helpful if maybe you can you know you're able to create a spreadsheet and yes. then you know, use the data on the spreadsheet to make yeah. you know. See, I, I'm totally like spreadsheet illiterate and um, <laughs> thanks thanks to RCBS Knowledge and all of their amazing resources that's how I managed to start my journey. Um, so on the website everybody um, the, we have the National Audit for Small Animal Neutering and also the Canine Cruciate Registry. Those are two areas where you can actually download the spreadsheets to help you start your data collection so you don't have to make your spreadsheet yourself. Amazing! Um, and then you can upload and share your data with Knowledge once you have the permissions of your employer. Benchmark and see where you're at and make improvements and there's also loads of guidance there now um, in our advice hub where you can decide how and what you might want to improve it's really really exciting yeah so I, I started off using the vet audit template that um, they have yeah. on the RCBS knowledge website for my place of complications and I just found it sort of really easy you just input your data and then it does all the calculations for you um, and it has a nice little sort of chart that you can share with everyone um, so that was really good and then um, I thought, yeah, you know, I can do something like this for, for other areas. Um, and then I'd like to make sort of bar charts or pie charts for the data that I had as well, because it's nice to have that sort of... Um, visual, isn't it? Yeah, yeah more engaging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I think you, you don't even have to be good with maths. So when I was doing my, um, you know, perioperative temperatures, um, I would colour code things. So um, if it, you know, was borderline it would be a green and then if it was you know half a degree lower than that it'd be orange and half a degree lower it'd be red so just at a glance you can be like oh there's a lot of orange here or you know there's yeah, a bit more it's a really good idea red <laughs> um yeah. so um you don't have to doesn't necessarily have to sit there and work out any you know, percentages and statistics you can just color code it like that yeah no it's really really good and I hope everyone that's listening feels inspired to get cracking now as well it's like what's what's next so Louise you have just um changed job roles now um and I was just wondering going forwards what how, how do you plan to use QI ongoing um professionally um so uh, yeah I just started working as a night nurse so doing a lot of, sort of emergency and critical care work um in a hospital and I 
I think they had someone doing some clinical audits beforehand, but I think they have been on maternity leave for a while and, and no one else has sort of really picked it up. Um, so I have been asked to help them with QI stuff, which, oh. you know, try and stop me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before, before they know it, I'll clinically audit the face of the mince of his life. Um, yeah, and, they're, uh, they're walking on Monday and, and you'll be like, I've, put, I've got a list of ideas just here. These are the things I've already started for you. <laughs> I'll be yeah, back tomorrow exactly. night and I want to know all what you think. <laughs> yeah, they're going to regret asking me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I think that'd be good. And I think um, one thing, especially for emergency crit- critical care is... Um, I want to start introducing significant events auditing mm-hmm. as well. Um, I think that's really important, not just the, you know, the things that have gone badly, but the things that have gone well as well, and using them as um, sort of learning and training opportunities. So maybe if an, you know, a patient crashes mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some people potentially go into a bit of a panic mode, and then you know, when, when it's all calmed down afterwards, you sort of think, oh, you know, maybe I should have integrated quicker maybe I could have you know got those meds into that animal quicker that kind of thing and then thinking well why didn't we do that um is it you know a training issue is it you know in a a system problem and so I think yeah significant events um auditing is, is really important yeah me too that's something actually in my practice that's on the agenda for this year to do more of um and yeah I completely agree and like you say not just the things that go wrong but the things that go well so why you know why did it go so well that day we've done this before and normally it's more of a struggle but like why were we firing on all, all cylinders what, had, what what was different so no it's super exciting and um, so we've been talking for ages I feel like we could talk until midnight to be honest and bounce ideas off of each other but you need to go back to work and you're probably extremely tired after last night's night shift um but what are your final top tips for anybody that's thinking of starting QI or their first project? Yeah, the first project, I think don't um, don't overwhelm yourself. I think it's very, very easy to find it overwhelming with all the you know stats and figures to start on something pretty basic. I think I do think post complications are a really good place to start, especially because of all the um, good resources that are on RCVS knowledge Um, really helpful definitely helped me when I was starting um, because these are things that we're doing day in day out and they are routine procedures um, and you know you can get good good data capture for these things then it's easy Um, and then also you can you know they're they're quick wins as well so you can um, you know monitor it for a month you've got your benchmark figures you can then take that to your staff meeting or you know to head nurse or clinical director and then on a month by month basis, you can then you know, produce, the, produce these audits and um, you can very quickly see when things are changing um, and then implement things and then very quickly see things improving. So I think it's really good for the team to see things improving. Um, it's really good for morale and, and for compliance with, with your um, auditing as well. Yeah, and it's it's nice to be able to share things with owners as well, isn't it? So they're like, if they ask you, for example, oh, what's the risk or associated complication rate for my pet's operation? Um, you would have a, a national benchmark and then you've also got your practice men- benchmark as well. Um, if they're interested, I'm sure clients will be asking those types of questions more in the next couple of years as um, they see much more sort of um, in, interested in facts and figures these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, the IVC do their patient safety award as well, which is sort of what I was working towards with the practice, which helps with the QI as well, because um, I could sort of show that 
because we're doing this QI, it's enabled us to get this award um, for the practice. Um, so yeah, if you're an IVC practice out there, um, it's a really good initiative to get involved with, I think. I don't know if you've done it in your practice. We haven't done it actually, no, but maybe maybe it's on the list. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time this afternoon and waking up especially to talk to me. I do appreciate it. I, I hope that everyone listening has thoroughly enjoyed it. I'd like to say congratulations again for your amazing project and amazing work. It was very comprehensive. You've covered so much. and uh, I advise everyone that's listening to go on over and have a read of Eloise's project. Um, details of the RCVS Knowledge Awards for 2023 are coming very soon. So keep your eyes peeled and um, we will speak to you soon but thanks so much Eloise. You're welcome thanks nice to talk to you. We hope you have enjoyed this recording please share it with your colleagues and friends if you would like to find out more about quality improvement and access our free courses examples and templates please visit our quality improvement pages on our website at rcbsknowledge.org.